Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Let's bring in Nick Benenbrook, shall we? Wells Fargo Securities Head of Currency Strategy. Good morning to you, Nick. Great to have you with us. Good morning. The price insensitive bias, this is such a distorted bond market. And if you try and rationalize what's happening with bonds based on fundamentals alone, I just think you're wasting your time. I mean, you know what's going to happen in the secondary market. It doesn't matter what price these things are at. There's going to be a buyer. Well, I do agree with Lisa. I, I, I think it was interesting just, you know, how little demand there was in this particular auction. But to your point, I think Mario is going to keep on buying both lemonade plus these German bonds uh, as well as some others. I think perhaps one of the interesting things or maybe one of the reasons this auction didn't go quite so well is there's, you know, there's now a lot more discussion about German stimulus possibly down, coming down the pike. And so maybe there's uh, some investors out there thinking they might get, you know, a little bit cheaper uh, if they just hold out for a little bit. So maybe there's a, a better buying opportunity just down the line. Well, but, but this really, uh, John raised a really good point. Is this a tipping point or is this just a typical auction uh, where they can't sell everything and there isn't huge bid to cover ratio? I think to be fair, and I don't follow the sort of the German bond auctions as closely as, as the US bond auctions, I, I don't think it is a tipping point. I mean, certainly I don't think the ECB is changing their tune, rates, yields are going to remain very low. Uh, so I think this is more likely to be a, a, a one-off. I suspect if they had another auction, it would go a little bit better. Uh, but no, I certainly don't think it's a sea change. Do you think that there is an underestimation of inflation at this point? Uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, you, you know, you're getting a little bit of inflation here in the United States. Uh, th the surprising thing when we had sort of just the massive uh, expansion of balance sheets and the printing of money from all of the central banks was that you didn't get any inflation at all. And that, I think, reflected just the sort of the massive uh, sort of balance sheet recession that we had. And, and I think, you know, having now gone a whole decade and, and that inflation hasn't showed up, I don't think there is an underestimation of inflation at this point. Well, Nick, just to build on the question of Lisa, I just wonder whether the boat has loaded too much to the one side, just in terms of the pessimism around growth, the pessimism around inflation. Have we gone too far too quickly to the one side? Um, that's a reasonable point. Uh, I think if I was going to say, you know, is there too much pessimism on inflation? Um, I, I'd be more balanced on that, but I certainly would argue that on the growth side, arguably, I think people are a little pessimistic. Sure, a lot of the central banks are, are largely out of room, but there are still a few uh, you know, governments out there with a little bit of fiscal space. I mean, I think if the monetary authorities and the fiscal authorities were to work together uh, a little bit more cooperatively, that we could you know, see a bit of a bounce back in growth over time. John, I love that you picked up exactly where I was going. Yeah, my concern as I look at the markets is, especially given Norway's throwing in the towel on bets on higher rates, that there seems to be capitulation and a strong consensus building. And whenever there's a strong consensus building, there can be a Widowmaker trade uh, just sitting there waiting to happen. And I just have to wonder, you know, the strong consensus right now, rates lower, uh, inflation more abound, the ECB, Mario Draghi continuing to buy that lemonade till he, you know, turns blue. I'm just wondering, you know, is there any argument against that? And are we getting to the point where we could see a pretty violent reversal on very small news simply because there is this strong consensus? I think that there is a chance that you see, you know, a reaction to, to, to small news. The problem or the issue, I think, is that the, the chance of that sort of news occurring is, is quite low. 
I'm sort of going back into the past. I can think of the t- taper tantrum back in 2013, I think it was, um, when Bernanke started to prepare the markets for the end of the uh, Fed's bond buying. And you can go all the way back to 1994, where there was that like massive, uh, uh, you know, very sharp tightening cycle. But I think if you look around all the central bankers, if you think they're more likely to surprise us uh, on the downside, as they're not, no one seems to be turning around and talking about tightening. So that 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 surprise that you're talking about, I think, is a very low probability. So with that in mind, Nick, got to get your currency call in G10 right now. The dollar, a lot of people were looking for a weaker dollar. It hasn't materialized in the way that people thought it would. What's your base case at the moment? Uh, we were looking for a weaker dollar, and as you say, it hasn't materialized, so a little disappointing for us. But uh, for right now, we're looking for more range trading. So for the euro, you know, 110 to 112 through most of the year. Here's, here's the thing. Uh, if you look at all of the central banks, they're all, they're all easing, they're all cutting rates. New Zealand, Australia, Federal Reserve, uh, ECB. They're also not cutting rates as much as everybody wants to. If you look at the market pricing, everybody's out ahead of these central banks. So we'd sort of go back a good decade or so and think about the carry trade. You know, everyone's going down. I don't think the currencies are going to move that far. So be short the low yielding currencies and and be long the, the high yielding currencies. That suggests selling the euro, the Aussie and the QE all against the US dollar. Stronger US dollar then? Uh, yeah, I think I think in the near term rangy but yes if you're going to see any move it's going to be dollar stronger and particularly against you know um the growth sensitive currencies so aussie kiwi and and, and a lot of the uh, emerging markets as well what about emerging markets currencies yeah. uh, you know we've seen some excitement there uh, quite a lot of excitement excitement uh, to the downside or yeah. the upside <laughs> argentina turkey so excitement That's a to lot the, of excitement uh, excitement to the downside brazil hasn't been doing quite so well recently um for 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 now i think that uh probably in the next uh Probably in the next few months, we'd probably see a little more downside for, um, you know, for some of these emerging currencies. Although, you know, if we get to a point where, where yields, which are already incredibly low, go even lower, um, maybe some of these emerging currencies do better later on. Hey, Nick, it's great to catch up. Nick Benenbrook there, dropping by the studio here in New York. Wells Fargo Securities Head of Currency Strategy. Joining us now, Ralph Pricer, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, International Global Head of Rate Strategy. Ralph, walk me through what you're looking for over the next couple of days. Right, the events that you've highlighted, I guess from my perspective, sitting in London, the one thing I would add that you didn't mention is the ECB accounts, because we do also have uh, a lot of question marks about what the European Central Bank will be doing in light of much more evidence of a slowdown in Europe compared to what the Fed has had to deal with so far. But that's exactly it. It's the question mark over whether or not the Fed cares to qualify uh, what the market clearly took as a very disappointing rate cut in July, um, and uh, whether um, Jerome Powell follows that up with any more elucidating comments uh, in Jackson Hall itself. Are we asking for too much to see that in the minutes later this afternoon, Ralph? Because as we know, it looks like a very divided FOMC and that division could grow a little bit louder when you sift through these minutes a little bit later. Yeah, I would be surprised that the minutes are used to pre-signal anything meaningful given that um, the chair is going to be speaking later on and that the uh, that Jackson Hole will provide um, maybe a more nuanced um, explanation of what, uh, what the debate is actually all about within the FOMC. Ralph, are you worried at all about positioning right now in rates, the fact that there seems to be capitulation, that rates are going to stay where they are or go lower? 
um, I'm always worried about positioning. Um, it's one of the, the things we do as strategists. But you're absolutely right. Positioning uh, on our service has been flagging as being near extremes, in particular for the U.S. for some time. Um, but the, when you when you sift through the numbers in a bit more detail, the reason why people are long is because they're looking for hedges. Um, you know, the equity market remains near their um, highs. Uh, Ten-year Treasury notes are regularly flagged as being the most efficient risk-off hedge in, in our surveys. So that is one big reason why people are long. It's not that they necessarily um, actually expect the Fed to follow through on all the rate cuts that are currently priced, but they need an instrument that protects them against uh, something going horribly wrong further down the line, and tenure notes are providing that hedge, at least for now. So from that perspective, sorry. No, no, but you said at least for now, and that's actually what I wanted to pick up on, which is at what point are yields so low and is positioning so extreme that treasuries don't provide that hedge? I think we're quite a bit away from that um, in the sense that if you look at what the uh, market pricing for the Fed actually hides, so if you ask in detail, you know, what is it you actually expect the Fed to do, you, what you see is a fairly bimodal distribution. So there's a few, uh, well, the, the majority of investors, so around 50%, actually expect uh, the Fed to do what they said that it would do, which is that mid-cycle adjustment. But then there's a very significant minority of investors who fear that the Fed may have to revisit the zero lower bound and expect rate cuts of 150 basis points or more. When you're faced with that kind of bimodal distribution, interpreting what the market is pricing is actually quite difficult because it is essentially just putting a line through those very two extremes. You know, the world might be okay, it might not. Um, But the fact of the matter remains that if you worry about the Fed having to revisit the zero lower bound, then tenure notes do provide a lot of upside. Europe, I think, is a very different matter. And and to your question about at what point do we run out of of hedges, well, the 30 auction this morning in, in Germany clearly was a signal that um, there isn't actually an, that much end demand from investors when you're asking them uh, to pay up for someone else to look after their money for them for the next 30 years. Ralph, your thought on how the yield curve is responding to the easing that is set to come from the ECB and is coming from the Federal Reserve. Typically, what we'd expect to happen is a bull steepener to start to come through the curve in treasuries as the Fed starts to cut interest rates. It's not happening, Ralph. Why is it not happening? Um, it's not happening for a variety of reasons. So um, in the US, I think what, what is interesting about the inversion is not the fact that it's happened, but the fact that it took so long. Um, it is very, very unusual for the yield curve to start inverting after the beginning of the easing cycle, which is what we faced last week. What that is, is a very clear signal that the market believes that the Fed is somewhat behind the curve. Um, so the the issue we have is that this is not a normal rate cut cycle uh, where the um, Fed actually deliberately raised rates to meaningfully above neutral, thereby slowing down an economy that would otherwise have been overheating. No, this is an economy that was basically recovering you know, somewhat above trend, who um, is being tripped up by a global manufacturing cycle that has slowed very materially and therefore is facing meaningful storm clouds on the horizon without actually an awful lot of evidence of weakness in the domestic economy so far. And that results in this, you know, very wide distribution of possible outcomes that is being priced in. But the clearest reflection of that and that hedge demand is basically a, a yield curve that inverts um, after the beginning of the easing cycle. Yeah. Uh, Europe is a very different kettle of fish uh, because there we're dealing with um, a policy toolkit that is considerably more constrained and a central bank that has by and large run out of ammunition, if we're honest. Yeah. So from that perspective, 
the path of least resistance is lower and flatter. So, Ralph, uh, John's been trying to put me on the spot all morning uh, with respect to that German 30-year auction, and I've been dodging it, I think, pretty effectively. But I want to put you on the spot instead. Uh, and, and, you know, basically, is it an inflection point? You were saying that the pushback, the lack of demand that we saw seems to be some resistance to accepting losses, essentially, to lend money. Um, do you think that we have reached an inflection point in German boons? No, I don't. Um, so we actually see uh, bond yields lower uh, into year end. Um, and there's a, a few key um, differences I would tease out relative to where we were in 2015, where a poor 10-year auction kind of marked the beginning of the end of the bond rally before the bond tantrum kicked off in earnest in April. Um, number one, economic surprises uh, actually continued to be uh, very negative, whereas in 2015, we were looking back at a, at a fairly meaningful uh, turnaround in um, in the data flow. Equally, PMIs remain at much weaker levels. Uh, the economic risks are also much more clear and present uh, in the sense of Brexit, uh, in the sense of the threat of water tariffs, uh, the weakness in Chinese data that has yet to be reflected in, in European data and so on and so forth. Um, relative value is also another uh, key issue. Um, so from the perspective of an FX hedged investor, um, so if I put myself in the shoes of someone sitting in the US running an FX hedge benchmark, they're looking at 10-year yields in, in buns, not as minus you know, 65, minus 70 basis points, but actually as you know, plus 1.9%, plus 1.8%, providing meaningful pickup relative to 10-year notes because of the 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 pickup that is implicit in the in the FX hedge, whereas back in 2015, on that metric, bonds were actually 100 basis points rich relative to treasuries. So from that perspective, I think it's very, very difficult to um, make the case for a tantrum. I think what would cause a tantrum in bonds and, and create that big turning point uh, for bond yields is a change in the narrative. So if the trade war ends tomorrow, then yeah, we can sell off, obviously, uh, but it has to end credibly. Um, if you get a fiscal policy impulse out of Germany, and by that I don't mean what the current constitutional rules allow for, but actually something that most people would understand as fiscal impulse, i.e. something that is big and meaningful, then that obviously would provide a very different uh, backdrop. If the Chinese uh, were to start stimulating in a way that actually creates positive spillover effects for the rest of the world, so infrastructure investment as opposed to monetary policy easing and currency depreciation, then that could potentially also change the narrative. But I think we're a long way away from seeing any of those things materialize anytime soon. So from that perspective, um, you know, you are uh, faced with the risk of uh, unanchored inflation expectations becoming ever more entrenched in Europe, and that's not going to provide a big upside for, um, for the long end of the curve. Hey, Ralph. Really smart final thoughts there. Ralph Pricer there. Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, International Global Head of Rate Strategy. The narrative just running away with itself that Germany is somehow putting together a package and will preemptively tackle some of the problems in Germany and Europe. At the moment, I don't see it. It's not happening. I hope it does. The optics are certainly encouraging. It's positive that this is part of the discussion. I hope it happens. But just realistically speaking, I don't see it happening right now. Let's find out what Jane Foley thinks. Uh, Jane Foley, Rebelbank, head of FX Strategy, joining us now from London. Uh, Jane, let's get started with the German f uh, fiscal stimulus, this idea that potentially, maybe, perhaps, 
in a downturn, they could uh, abandon their balanced budget policies. How realistic is it that Germany would actually engage in a meaningful fiscal stimulus early enough to stave off a downturn that is uh, really painful? Well, I mean, you can see from the outside looking in that there would appear to be a certain logic. Germany's budget position, for instance, looks more healthy than certain other large countries. So from that perspective, you can see the the logic building up. The reality in Germany, however, is that a lot of the fiscal power is localized. Um, And that means that from a practical perspective, it may not be that most, it may not be very straightforward or or simple to actually uh, make the decisions that bring forward a lot of fiscal stimulus. So it could actually be quite a difficult uh, proposition to actually see through. So there will be more pressure. Um, We've seen Germany, of course, uh, print a a negative GDP growth, Q&Q growth for for the second quarter. If we see another negative print for the third quarter, i.e. technical recession, then clearly that pressure will build up and, and therefore there will be increased pressure and perhaps more momentum within Germany to, to, to ease those fiscal uh, uh, purse strings. But um, it, it's not necessarily the, the, a foregone conclusion that some of the, the, the commentary in, in the markets in, in the last uh, few days, few weeks, would lead you to, to believe. One thing I'm struggling to understand as we look at the uh, interest rate picture and as we look at what central banks are doing, because certainly the ECB is preparing another round of stimulus on their end, given the fact that Germany is unlikely to come out with fiscal stimulus. I'm trying to understand the relationship between uh, the monetary policy and the FX rates, uh, where, where things are actually trading. I mean, at what point do central banks lose power over currency exchange rates? Well, of course, um, it, it's, uh, foreign exchange is not just driven by by FX rates. There is, of course, an awful lot of political influence, and, that, and I think this is very much the case in the G10 and in the, in the Trump sort of Brexit sort of era. There's a lot of political risk there. Now, you could take in the eurozone, you could take uh, at the Italian situation now and ask the question: Well, you know, is that a negative uh, euro factor? Well, you know, and the answer to that is: Well, potentially it is. I mean, today perhaps not because we've seen uh, the markets react uh, quite well to the most recent uh, uh, news from Italy. And that's the the assumption that there may not be a snap election in the next couple of months. That might be delayed uh, till next year. And and therefore, if we're not having a snap election in the next couple of months, we don't therefore have a a big budgetary conflict right now between Italy and the EU. That's potentially further down the road. But it is all about politics, I would say, um, as well as the economy, as well as interest rate differentials. But the central banks certainly have a a big part to play in, in foreign exchange. And what we have now is of course, a big emphasis on the September ECB policy meeting and a lot of speculation that the the ECB will use, and and a word that was used in the the press in the the last week, a bazooka, that they could do something quite significant. And I think that that one of the reasons that the euro has been under pressure quite lately is this perception that this isn't all about how much interest rate caps the Fed can do over the next year or so. It's actually about where else and who else could be doing the, these interest rate moves? And certainly, I think the ECB is, is, is right up there in the market's consciousness in, in the next few weeks. Well, Jane, if they move to tiering on the deposit rate, it opens a new range of possibilities up for just how low interest rates could go at the ECB. Have you got a base case for that, Jane, on how low things could go for ECB well, deposit rates? It's, it's very difficult to make that judgment right now, clearly, um, because it, it, it's difficult to know 
how bad the global economy can be and to try and make those sorts of assumptions you've got to try and make a prediction on how how far can trade wars go or how far can the the relationship deteriorate between uh, China and and the US overall so there's an awful lot of what ifs which of course there always are in in, in forecasting Um, but it it does the ECB don't want to use tiering immediately but certainly I think if conditions did worsen they may have to you have a situation um where we are talking about the potential of quantitative easing in australia where they're talking about in september the the swiss national bank cutting its interest rates below where they already are and that's minus 0.75 percent so you have um the the discussion about will countries such as sweden or denmark have to pass on negative uh rates to, to retail deposits for instance so that there's there's, a, there's an enormous um argument and debate about how low can this really go and and how effective uh, can these sorts of policies be and what sort of damage can they do in terms of the damage to uh, the models for uh, banks in, in Europe and, and also for inequalities, wealth inequalities, etc. So there's a, there's a huge uh, debate um, and, and certainly, you know, tiering is out there uh, on the agenda as, as a possibility for the, for the ECB, but it's very difficult right now to, to call the whims and, and to, to how low can this go. Just a final question for you, Jane. Euro-dollar, there was a hope that we'd finally break out of these really tight, narrow trading ranges, and we just seem to have established a new one in and around 111, 112 on the single currency against the greenback. Jane, do you see us breaking out of that range anytime soon, and where's the path of least resistance right now? Well, you know, I, I, we've tended to be below the market forecast for quite a while on, on euro dollar, and, and I've, I've had one ten penciled in there as, as a as a as a forecast to, for the end of of this year. And to be honest, in part of parts of this year, and I've 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 been so far out of consensus. I thought, oh, you know, do I have to change this? But you know, right now, you know, we're pretty close to one ten, and and I think we do have to um, address the risks about potentially going lower. And I think the answers to whether or not we can break below 110 are very much in what happens to European growth, what happens in, in terms of um, the, the, the ECB and, and whether or not the market does continue to believe that we could get that stimulus from Germany or not. Hey, Jane, always great to catch up with you. Jane Foley there, Head of FX Strategy at Rubber Bank, joining us out of the City of London on Global Foreign Exchange and Global Central Banking. We're so lucky to have with us Brian Hook, U.S. Special Representative for Iran and Senior Policy Advisor to Secretary of State Mike Pompeo joining us here in our 1130 studios. Um, thank you so much, Representative, for being with us. I just want to start with where where are we in terms of the discussion with Iran, uh, with the latest being this crude tanker leaving Gibraltar? Well, the Iranian regime uses oil sales to fund terrorism, and they use it to fund proxies like Hezbollah and Hamas and the Houthis in Yemen. They use it to fund their missile program, uh, which has done uh, so much to cause bloodshed and suffering throughout the Middle East. So right now we have the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, which is uh, using oil tankers to try to uh, move oil covertly. And this vessel was seized by Gibraltar, It was unfortunately released, and we are now tracking the movements of that tanker to try to do everything we can to avoid it from uh, achieving its destination. So what has been the impact on Iran from, you know, our efforts to kind of choke off their one of their key revenue streams, that being oil exports? 
Well, it's been enormously successful. Uh, when the president got out of the Iran deal in May of last year, Iran was exporting 2.5 million barrels of oil a day. You may have seen press reports in June and July that showed Iranian exports uh, around 100,000 barrels of oil. And this um, is 3% of the world's oil supply, but we have been able to maintain a very stable oil market uh, because we've done a good job of balancing our national security objectives uh, and our economic interests. But um, we have taken places to Iran. We have taken Iran uh, to places it's never been historically. Oil revenues are their largest source of export revenue. And so much of that is controlled by the Revolutionary Guard Corps and the Quds Force, which is active around the Middle East and all these Arab civil wars. And so by cutting off the oil, we are denying the regime the revenue that it needs to conduct a violent and expansionist foreign policy. Is the ultimate goal regime change? No, the ultimate goal is a change in regime's behavior. And one of the ways you can do that, I think it was Cicero who said that money is the sinews of war. Iran has less money today than it did two and a half years ago when we took office. The regime is weaker and its proxies are weaker as a consequence of our maximum economic pressure campaign. So if it's not regime change in terms of the actual personnel, but regime uh, behavior change, at what point will there be enough behavioral change? What's your sort of threshold for saying, okay, we can relax these sanctions and move forward with some diplomacy uh, apart from this? Well, the diplomacy option has been open for the last couple of years. Uh, the president and, and the secretary of state have made clear repeatedly that they would like to resolve our differences with Iran uh, diplomatically. Iran has rejected diplomacy too many times. They rejected the diplomatic overtures of Japanese Prime Minister Abe when he visited Iran for the first time. Any Japanese Prime Minister has ever visited Iran. Not only did the Supreme Leader of Iran reject his diplomacy, he then blew up a Japanese oil tanker for good measure. President Macron has also um, been on the receiving end of Iranian uh, rejections. And so we're intensifying our sanctions. We are helping Iran to see that the, um, that the costs of trying to pursue a nuclear program, a missile program, and regional aggression are simply too high. So pulling out of the Iran agreement initially uh, by President Trump, many argue that that was destabilizing the region. What is your response to that? It was the Iran nuclear deal that has come at the expense of regional stability. And if you read the Iran nuclear deal, all 147 pages, in the beginning, it talks about how this deal will promote regional peace and stability. Iran used the sanctions relief and spent it on Assad in Syria, on Hezbollah in Lebanon, on its proxies in Iraq, on the Houthis in Yemen, and on uh, Hamas. And as a consequence, the Iran deal allowed uh, the Iranian regime to achieve record levels of military spending and record levels of support for its proxies. Since we have taken office, um, Iran's proxies are weaker. Uh, the first year we were in office, Iran's military budget went down 10%, and then in the second year, it went down 28%. Uh, we have had stories in the New York Times and the Washington Post documenting how American sanctions have weakened Iran's proxies. This is a good thing for the Middle East. How important is it uh, to the administration to have coordination and cooperation with Europe? Oh, it's very important. Uh, I'm in almost regular uh, daily contact with my counterparts in the UK, France, and Germany. Yesterday, we had a very good uh, meeting with the Polish foreign minister. Um, we, I, I think the press has overstated our disagreements. 
the transatlantic rift that the press likes to report, we agree on much more than we disagree. When I'm in the room with the Brits and the French and the Germans, we share the same threat assessment about Iran. The regional aggression, the ballistic missile uh, testing, the missile proliferation, uh, the nuclear program. The world's leading sponsor of terrorism can never be allowed to have a nuclear weapon or even to come close to it. There's no disagreement there. We have tactical disagreements over the Iran nuclear deal. We have more leverage outside of the deal to prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon than inside of it. That's a tactical disagreement, but we don't disagree on the end state. Thank you so much for being with us. Brian Hook, U.S. Special Representative for Iran and Senior Policy Advisor to Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. We, we appreciate your time. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. 